Well, if you have your Bible, open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get you one. Continuing our series, Under the Sun, last week in chapter 6, we looked at Solomon's just uh, turmoil over the fact that there was not security that he could find in his possessions, in his material wealth. The things that he strove for were not able to bring satisfaction. And so he lived this unsatisfied, uncontent life. And we talked about the need to have our treasure in the right place. And really, chapter 7, he, he's springboarding from chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 12, he ends just with this, for who knows what is good for a man in life? And that's kind of where we're going to go forward here. There's a turn that takes place in chapter 7 where we start getting a lot of little proverbs that he starts presenting here, little sayings, bless you, bless you again. That was a quiet sneeze. He presents a lot of little proverbs that are going to be a part of the, the remainder of this portion of the book, and so he's not going to be so introspective, although he's still going to bring about some of his despair and the things that he's talking about. And, and here we're going to see that he comes to a place again, it's kind of a dark place, and I thought it was an interesting passage just in light of all that is taking place. Starting in verse 1, he says, a good name is better than fine perfume. And let's stop there because I just want to talk about this before we enter the next place. You have to remember this culture. Fine perfume or a precious ointment, it might say in another translation, is something that was very sought after. But it was also something that only those who had money could afford. You're talking about people who lived in a very hot region in the desert, in a time when there was not running water. And so people did not bathe regularly at all. You might go weeks without a bath in a hot climate. I'm just letting your imagination take over from here. And so there, there was something that would, be, that would precede you when you entered a room. It would be your fragrance. <laughs> That's the nice word. Your odor. And so there was this kind of, you know, presentation that people had when they were together that was very offensive. And those who had money could afford perfume. And they could put on, because even those who had money did not bathe regularly. They might bathe more frequently but it still was not something that they did regularly. And so what they would do is get this ointment, this perfume, douse themselves up. You know, they'd spray the little card and go like this. No, they don't do that. Uh, but they put it on the ointment so that now when you're talking to them, you're not distracted by the smell. And what Solomon is saying that better than that is a person who has a good name. And, and what he means by a good name is that your reputation and your status in the eyes of others will actually afford you more opportunity than just smelling good. And how people perceive you is really more important in how they receive you than just how you are smelling and there's kind of a play on words here in the Hebrew because he talks about a good name, which is the word Shem, and the word ointment or perfume is the word Shemen. 
And so there's this kind of like a Shem and a Shemin. It's better to have a good Shem than a Shemin. It doesn't mean anything to us, but if you were Hebrew, you'd be laughing right now, saying, oh, that was good. You know, it just has this idea, just like that, that's what you'd be. And so it has this idea that something precedes you other than your smell, and it's how people perceive you. And if people have a good perception of you, that's an advantage. In fact, it's a better advantage than fragrance. And we talked last week about Solomon and how he sometimes hits the button, sometimes he misses it throughout this book. You know, just like that broken clock that's right twice a day, Solomon nails it on this, that who you are is more important than the odor that you bring. And I think of Jesus' parable of the, the servant who was unprofitable and was let go, but he made friends with all the people who he owed the, his owner owed money to. And we talked about that in the past and how by him having that resource of friends that it actually preceded him so that he had a place to stay when the money was gone. And so Solomon starts off in saying, who you are is very important and it will afford you things that are valuable. And now we're going to take a turn and the turn is a little dark. He says, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Verse 2, it says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. Again, this was an interesting passage in light of the memorial service. Uh, It was something that just struck me very powerfully. As Solomon brings us to this place uh, of soul-searching, and he talks about the day of death is better than the day of birth. And what Solomon is saying is you can probably get more from a memorial service than you can a birthday. You're going to be better off if you learn the lessons at that memorial service than whatever lessons you can learn at a birthday. And he's bringing us to this place where he wants us to deal with the reality of who we are. You know, it is the scourge of men that we forget. And we forget so quickly our frailty, our mortality, that we, in fact, are inevitably going to die. We, we like to put that off. We don't want to think about those things. But then when we are faced with the reality at a funeral service, it becomes all too apparent and it can become very disquieting as we recognize these things about us. And verse 2, it's just scary. I mean, he talks about that death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. 
what do we do with this fact? Where do we go with the reality that we are going to die? Where does that take your mind? Where does that take your heart? What are the questions you ask yourself in light of this? Solomon is very much a realist here, and he'd rather face the truth than live a lie. But the truth is we like to live in that lie. We can lead very superficial lives. And that's why he takes this comparison about, you know, having going into the house of mourning rather than that of laughter. That it's good to, to deal with that instead of just singing the songs of fool and living for pleasure. Because one day you're going to have to own up to what is true, what is real. And we don't like to talk about that. We don't want to, to do that. We, we distract ourselves with so many things so that we do not have to face the reality that one day this life as we know it will end. And the frailty of that life and the uncertainty of life can be a terrifying thing. I remember when I was younger, I was just a teenager, maybe 13 or so, I remember lying in bed and just thinking, what happens when I die? What will happen to me? What if I don't wake up? I better not go to sleep because I might not wake up. I think that was the beginning of my sleeping disorder. I was just, oh, no. And I was terrified. What's going to happen to me? Because I had this idea, this is all of who I am. And what's going to happen when this is over? And that's a dark thought. It's something that can really haunt us. Jesus had a lot to say about death and about life. And our priorities. Jesus told a parable I think it's in Luke 16 where he talks about the man who's wealthy and he's doing well and he, he starts building bigger barns and he, he gets more things and he says, I've got a lot. I'm going to build more so I can eat, drink, and be merry. And then the parable goes on. He says, you fool, for today your soul is required of you. And then what's going to happen to all the things you've gathered? Who are they going to go to? You've gained them for what? And he tells us that we should be careful of where we invest in. What does it profit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? And James tells us that our life is but of a vapor. Today you're here, tomorrow you're gone. And, and when we deal with the tragedy of what some of you have gone through and what Denise and her family is going through right now and losing her teenage son, you realize tomorrow's promise to no one, that life indeed is a vapor, that we have to be aware of who we really are. And where do we go with this knowledge? Where do we find solace? Where, where do we find security when we recognize our frailty? What can we do? And Solomon doesn't answer that question here. 
He doesn't give us what we should do or what we should go to. He just tells us, hey, just be aware. And then he concludes, yeah, it's meaningless. You know, thank you, Solomon. I appreciate that. But you see, he, he didn't know where to go. He, we saw in last chapter that he was disturbed that his life was just going to end and all the things he accomplished, the, the money that he had would profit him nothing as soon as he's gone. And so now he's saying, you've got to be aware that you're going to die. Yeah, it's dark. Yeah, it's depressing. But hey, that's just how it is. It's better that you're aware of it than you live like a fool and blindly ignore what is going to happen to you. I remember my wife, I was telling her what the topic was going to be, and she goes, are you going to make me depressed? And I was like, not on purpose, you know, not trying to. But you see, this is the topic, and these are the things that we avoid. These are the things that force us to look at our lives and what our purpose is and what is our value. And as Solomon pushes us to this place to say, hey, this is who you are. The destiny of every man is that he's going to die. And the living should take this to heart. You need to have this in your thoughts. You need to have this understanding. This is how it is. Okay, and then he goes, yeah, and then it's meaningless. That's just, that's how it is. And he goes on later in these passages and verses 7 through 12, and he talks about making right judgment. He kind of comes off topic. He talks about not taking bad advice. Don't be impatient. Don't get angry quickly. Don't complain or compare yourself to the past and things that you did, the glory days. And he talks about the benefit of wisdom for living this life. But he kind of comes back on topic in verse 13 when he starts talking about, again, our position in our life. He says in verse 13, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Hey, when things are good, enjoy it. When things are bad, what can you do about it? You can't do anything. And you see, here is where Solomon, again, I think, swings the pendulum to a place where he's just kind of a fatalist. Whatever happens, happens. God's out there. Remember all the times that he uses the word God here in this book. It is the word Elohim. It is not the word Yahweh or Jehovah that is the personal God. It is the creator God. It is very much a distant regard with his use of the word God. It is not someone who is intimately active in my life. It is someone who is out there. He set the world in motion, and, and that's who he was. And so he, he comes to this place, and he says, hey, when things are good, enjoy it. When things are bad, what can you do about it? No one knows their future. They can't say anything. They can't discover anything about their future. And this got me thinking. It actually kind of got me upset. Because I think that a lot of people who follow Christ have this fatalistic attitude. You know, you might go to events and people talk about, hey, you know, we're going to make history. And everyone goes, yeah, we're going to make history. Yeah, we're going to have this big event and we're going to be on Twitter and everyone's going to, you know, know our Twitter thing. Or oh boy, we made history. But when you start talking, you start talking about 
We're going to make a future. People go, oh, no, no. You don't make a future. That's God's job. God does the future thing. You can only, well, if you make history, aren't you creating a future? I mean, just the way we think is very closed. We, we, we can't. God knows those things. In fact, there's a, a scripture in Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And we think that word plans is like a blueprint. I know the plans I have. It's like this dotted line. It's like this is, this is how your life is going to be. This is how your life is going to be made. But the word is not actually that kind of word. It's actually I know how I'm thinking about it. It's almost like I know the dreams I have for you, says the Lord. Plans, those thoughts to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And so God has this idea to give us a future. It's not a strict blueprint where this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to do. It's like, I have this idea for you. And it's good. And this is when he's speaking to Israel when they are enslaved. And he says, get used to this. You're going to be here a while. But guess what? I got this idea for you. And it's good. So even right here in this continual position of slavery, I have something good for you. And throughout the scripture, there are things that God does that moves people into a healthy direction. In Daniel chapter 2, if you want to go to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verse 45 Daniel's interpreting a dream, and in verse 45, he says, This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. So Daniel is saying, God has shown you the future. Now, I'm bringing this about because Solomon just said, no one can tell you the future. No one knows the future. And Daniel's saying, God gave you a dream that's about the future. You see, you're not stuck. God has given you insight into what will happen. This happens again in Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. Daniel says, now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people, what, in the future. For the visions concern a time yet to come. God has given you insight into the future of what will come. Why, why is God doing this? Because he's trying to give them understanding of what's going to happen. You see, no one understands the future. You're locked. Well, there is a future that is still to be made. There is a future that is still your life. And you are not stuck. As Solomon says, well, no one can declare what's going to happen to the future. There's one more place I want to take you to, and that's in 2 Kings chapter 20. So you're going to turn way back. 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah the king is ill. And Hezekiah is a great king. Starting at verse 1, he says, In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. 
The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Now there's news. God's telling Hezekiah, this is what's going to happen. Get things in order. You're going to die. You're not going to recover. And Hezekiah, being a mighty king, took it with dignity, prepared himself. No, he did like you and I would probably do. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept like a baby. Well, wept bitterly. He started crying. No! Notice what happens. Before Isaiah had left the middle court and the word of the Lord came to him, go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple to the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend the city now. I will defend the city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Hezekiah got 15 more years. Now, I wonder if he had a calendar and he started marking, okay, is that from the day or is that just the year? How does that work, God? What's going to happen? But what I want you to notice is there was an interaction between Hezekiah and God that changed his future. Now, we'll see that through this time that there's some bad things that happened because of Hezekiah. Manasseh was born, who was one of the evil kings of Israel. But I think it's enlightening to understand that your life and your interaction with God can actually change your future. That you are not stuck. That this life and the lot you have in life, well, you're going to live, you're going to die, and no one knows what's going to happen. That you actually have input into what's going to happen. That your life and the direction of your life, the momentum that you're taking into it, can produce something that is of value so that you will not be stuck in this place of, oh, well, you're going to live, everyone's going to die. That's just how it is. Things are good. Enjoy it. Things are bad. Hey, what can you do about it? You can't change the future. And give up on this fatalistic attitude and recognize that who you are as a person who has this relationship with God, even a closer relationship than Hezekiah had, are able to dialogue with God. And you might not be told, and hopefully I really don't want to know the day I'm going to die, but I have an interaction with God where I can have influence on the things that I will do. Do you see your life as being able to change the future, your future, the future of those around you? Do you see your life as having input into what will happen, or is that just up to God? Whatever God wants, that's what we have to do. No one knows the future. So I'll just surrender that and I'll just be lemmings that'll follow the crowd. I'll just go with the flow. Or do you realize that like Hezekiah, 
you have a relationship with the living God and you are able to have input into what will happen in your life. See, I, I think this is so vitally important. I, I think this is crucial in our understanding of how we live our lives because the plan that God has for us, this dream, if you will, this thought that he has for us is good. But it's not the blueprint. It is the idea that we need to then step into and fulfill. There is our responsibility to what God has envisioned. And it will not happen if we do not take it. And I wonder if, you know, we wonder why is the, the church, those who make up this, this body of Jesus Christ, why is there so little power in our lives? Why, why are we having so little effect on the world around us? I know it's because we need to get legislative, you know, things to help push our cause forward. I know that's it. No, that's not going to do it. Do you realize that from the first century when Christ came, died, and was risen from the dead to when Constantine made Christianity the world religion about 300 A.D., that the church grew from that small number to about 20 million? And do you realize that in China, when Mao closed the doors to the bamboo curtain, kicked out all the missionaries, kicked out all the Western influence that was coming into their country, that when they opened the doors back in, they were wondering, what are we going to find? Is there any remnants of Christianity going to be found in China? And they found that the church was six million people strong without the influence of anybody else. It had grown. How? We weren't there. We didn't have crusades. How could they have grown without our help? They had lives that affected other lives, and they made their future. They had influence on their culture, on their friends, their relatives, and they changed the whole demographic of a country without any outside help. Amazing. Amazing. Why don't we take a lesson from those examples and realize that we have influence and can affect our future and the future of those around us? Solomon goes on in verse 15. Back in Ecclesiastes. And he says... This is meaningless. This, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. You know you're in for something when he starts off that way. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen a couple of things. Well, why would I want to learn something from this meaningless life of yours? Well, that's another question. He says, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. So here's something I've learned in this meaningless life of mine. I've seen a person who's good and is right perish in his righteousness. And I've seen the person who is wicked do well, live long in his wickedness. Verse 16, it says, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be 
over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes or will follow them both. Now, commentators really do a number on these verses. They really struggle with these things and what they think he's saying because they've got to try and make it palatable for us to understand. And so I've heard them say, well, you know, what he's saying when he says, you know, don't be overrighteous, he's talking about don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a goody two-shoes. Don't go too far and be self-righteous in this way. And, and don't be too wise, you know, where you think yourself too mighty or too high-minded. You know, that, that's not good. If you do those things, it's bad. But then it says, you know, don't be over-wicked. And that's obvious. Don't be over- So is a little wicked good? You see, and I think what Solomon is dealing with here, and this is why I love this book, because this book is an unbridled mind dealing with all the right issues. And, And what Solomon is dealing with is, okay, if I live and I die and that's it, you know what? I'm just going to go through this life and try and, and make my way as best I can. I'm not going to try and be too righteous and work for all these things. Why should I do that? It's only going to end up being a detriment to me. It's only going to end up hurting me. Why destroy myself trying to be too good, trying to be too wise? And I'm not going to be too wicked because I'll end up dying if I, you know, alcohol poison, whatever it is. I, I'm not going to get too bad. I'm just going to kind of hold on to them both and just try and go through the middle. I'm just not going to make too much noise. After all, I have no effect on the future. You see, and, and this is a life and this is a mindset that sees that fatalistic wall that says you really can't do anything that's worth much. You're going to live, you're going to die, you're going to leave your money to others, you're going to die. I've seen the righteous die early, I've seen the wicked live long. Hey, do what you can. Don't go to extreme here, don't go to extreme there. Just kind of hold on to them both. And I think a lot of people have been swallowed up in this mentality. But, you see, there is this man who changed everything. This man who had a lot to say about death. And Jesus did not do well with death. In fact, whenever he went to a funeral service, He changed things, big time. Whether it was the widow's son and he raised him from the dead, whether it was Lazarus and raised him from the dead, even his own funeral service rose from the dead. And it's if Jesus was making an exclamation and saying, this will not do. Your life does not consist of the things that you own. There is more to your life than you are aware of. And that's why the scriptures say that he who has the Son has life. 
And Jesus said, before he rose Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There is not an end to your future if you are alive. And if you are connected to the life of Jesus Christ, then you can make a difference. And you should plan on making a difference. You see, this idea of, well, don't get too caught up in it. Don't go too extreme. If you go too extreme, you're going to just end up, you know, destroying yourself. You're going to be miserable. That mentality will stop you from achieving the plans that God has for you, the dreams that God desires for you to fulfill. And I think about some of the people and the things that they've done. I think about Mother Teresa and her influence of millions of people over 45 years. What if she would have thought, well, you know, I can't do too much good, so I'm just going to stop. I'm going to go vacation in Spain. Why would I want to go to India? It, it just, it would stop what an incredible work if this mindset was there. I think of other people. I think of Scott Harrison. In 2006, he started Charity Water. And he's helped over a million people get water who did not have water in different countries. Just because he had this idea and he went for it. He stepped out into it and he's changing the world. You know, more familiar is probably Blake McCoskey, who started Tom's Shoes in 2005 and has given away over a million shoes to those kids who did not have shoes. Just because he had this idea, you know what, I think I'm going to start a company. And he changed, actually, how charities run things. Instead of being a non-profit organization, he's a profitable organization that is doing more good even though they're making a profit. He's still giving away things, and people have tapped onto it. And he's given over a million shoes away. And is changing the lives of people and is affecting the future of people because he sees that there is something that can be done. Do you see that there is something that can be done with your life, that your life is not here for you to live, to die, and that's it, you're done. If that is how you see things, then you are not yet alive because the life that Jesus gives cannot be stopped. It will go past the grave. It cannot be contained. You can affect the future. You can change the world that you're in if you recognize the life that you have in Jesus Christ that you have more power at your disposable than you understand, and that those who belong to Jesus affect those around them, and they've changed the world, and they are still changing the world if they see that they are able to change the world. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is what are the plans that God has for me? And you see, I've shared this before, the the will of God is not a tightrope that you have to find. What is God's will for me? I'm looking. Okay, there it is. I think I'm supposed to do this. What's the next step, God? What's the next step? Okay, there it is. I think 
That's like twister. You know, I got to go over here. Now, God, what? Oh, green left hand. Oh, no. You know, what do I got to How do I jump through these hoops, God? What do I do? God says, your life, go for it. You're alive in me. Live. What do you desire? I will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight in me, what do you want to do? And the will of God is a four-lane expressway that you should be flying down. Not this tightrope that you have to walk on. The plans that God has for you are wide open. You can do whatever you want. Now, what do you want to do? That's the question. What do we want to do? Are we content like Solomon? I don't really want to do anything. I just want to not be too good so that people make fun of me, so I make things hard on myself. I don't want to be too bad so I get in trouble or it's detrimental. I just want to live in the middle of both of them. God will be fine with that. Or do you want to change the world? Has the life of Christ gripped your heart enough so that it's exploding out of your life and that you are not content to do little, that you see that you were here given his life to do great things? Now, you might not sell millions of shoes. You might not help millions of people. You might not dig tens of thousands of wells. You might just involve yourselves with some children. You might help families. You might, I don't know. You don't have to think of it as millions and millions. You see, the church in China didn't grow because someone preached to millions. Someone just talked to their neighbor. And someone else just talked to their neighbor. And someone just shared with their friends. Someone just lived the life that Christ had in them, and it changed the lives around them. Some of us are content to live lives that are stagnant and going nowhere. And God is saying, I have plans for you, a future and a hope, plans that are good. What do you want to do? And that question is for us to ask ourselves here today. What do we want to do with this life that God has given us? We'll pray because there's a baby that's not happy right now. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not get locked into this mindset that Solomon just struggled with where he came to the end and saw nothing beyond his life. Lord, that we would experience the life that you give, a life that is abundant. God, that we would recognize that your desire for us is good, that you have a future for us and we need to go out and get it. That we have a responsibility, that we have an involvement into this plan, that we are connected to you and you are working through us. And God, we need to take hold of the things 
that are before us. And not leave them to chance, not trust that you're going to do whatever you're going to do, but recognize you have set us here, given us your life so that we can change the world around us. Lord, there are so many things we don't have control of and we don't need to worry about. But Lord, what you have given us, we need to take hold of. And we need to make the most of it. And, and forgive us, God, for being lazy. Forgive us for not wanting to step in to the work that you are doing. Forgive us for just being so short-sighted, not recognizing that you desire to use us in ways that are bigger than we can imagine. That you've called us to a life that is greater than the life we've known. Lord, may we welcome that. May we embrace it. And may we allow your life to change ours forever. We do ask it in Jesus' name.